my friend Bobblehead Jesus. He's been out here all the previous two weeks, so we got to bring him back. So, My name is Chris Genders. I'm the youth pastor for the church. And uh, Bill White, our lead pastor, and his wife, Vicki, got back from Israel, um, I believe, on Friday after... Uh, is, is, are they in here, Vicki? Are you in here? 24 and a half hours of travel. There's some snapping over there. Go over there. 24 and a half hours of travel? Did you guys get lost? Like, Wow. Gotcha. Okay. All right. All right. All right. I was trying to figure out what cities you were routed through. That's amazing. But um, are, Bill, are you going to be talking next week about your trip? A oh, little bit. A lot in February, a little bit tomorrow. Okay. All right. I, or next week. I'm all confused. Um, <clears throat> Hi, I'm Chris Genders. I'm the, no. Um, this morning, I want to, we're, we're finishing up our Shrinking Jesus series. We've been going for a couple weeks, and if you've been here, you've seen Bobblehead Jesus, and you saw my whiteboard, and you saw the teeter-totter last week, and, and I encourage you to go back and listen to the CDs or podcasts or download on iTunes or whatever, but um, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. Today, um, it's amazing when, when you preach a, a series, and Bill, I know you do this all the time, but it seems like it changes, like the, the delivery style, the format, the approach that you take. At least for me, it's, it's changed. Like, every week's been a little different. And so this week, um, if I were to describe this week, it would be as, as if we were sitting at the Blend, which is one of my favorite coffee shops. Um, I like others, but that's the one I go to the most. <clears throat> it's as if we were sitting at the Blend and, and we're just going to have a, a, a face-to-face conversation, okay? Um, that's how I want this morning to feel. And so um, just think about that as I, as I deliver the content this morning. So um, we're talking about surrender. We're talking about um, submission, and one of the things that, that I get to do as a pastor is um, I get invited into, you know, both good and bad times in people's lives. And uh, one of those moments is uh, premarital counseling. And in fact, I've got this coming up with uh, my intern, Brandon. Um, we're going to do premarital counseling with him and his fiance soon. And, um, you know, one of the things in the first session I always do, I'm just, and, a lot, and sometimes I, I know the people, other times it's even more fun when I don't know them that well. Um, but we sit down and I open the Bible to Ephesians chapter 5. And I go to verse 22 and I look at the wife, bride-to-be. And I say, this is what the Bible says. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And I just kind of pause there. And I watch the wife, the woman, bristle a little bit. She's like, really? Really, Pastor Chris? Like, that's where you're starting this whole premarital thing is, I'm supposed to submit to this jerk? Like, I'm supposed to, like, give everything up to this guy? You know, and I'm like, well, you're about to marry this guy. You realize that, right? The rest of your life. And, but you just see it. They don't ever say that, but you see their body language. And just like this idea of submitting to this guy, even though I love him, even though I'm, I'm committing my life for the rest of my life to this guy, don't like that word submit, right? Now, I don't leave the bride hanging there because I go on and I read in Ephesians 5 the role of the husband. The role of the husband is to love the wife as Christ loved the church. And I, and I go on and elaborate. I said, how did Christ love the church? Well, he gave himself up for her, everything. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally. I mean, everything he did was to, to, to protect and provide for his bride, the church. And that's the picture that we as men are supposed to bring into our marriage. And I looked at the woman and I said, hey, if he was able to do this, and we know he's got flaws and mistakes, and you don't need to tell me about them, but we know he's got flaws and mistakes, but if he was able to do this, to live out how Christ loved the church, would you have any problems submitting to him? And after I spend a few minutes explaining how the husband's supposed to be, Almost every woman I've ever, I've ever talked to in premarital counseling goes, I would have no problem. In fact, I would love that. If he did that for me, yeah, I, I, I could submit. 
But when we attach this, this baggage, this cultural baggage to this word of submit, um, in definition, it means yielding to a superior force. I don't use that in premarital counseling. Uh, yielding to a superior force or to the will or authority of another person ceasing resistance. We don't like this idea of submitting, of giving up control of, of our choices, our lives, everything to another human being. And maybe it's not your spouse. Maybe you've got that figured out and you've got a great relationship. And the Bible actually says that we're to submit to each other. Back up a little bit in Ephesians 5 that husbands are supposed to submit to the wives and wives are supposed to submit to the husbands. So it's mutual submission. And Maybe you've got that figured out. But maybe it's your boss. Maybe your boss has laid out a plan for you and you don't like it. And so you decide to take matters in your own hands. Maybe it's not your boss. Maybe it's your kid's coach. The coach says, hey, um, on the court, I am in charge. You don't get to tell me how to coach your kid. I've been doing this a lot longer. You just need to sit there and be quiet and let me do my thing. How many of us are willing to submit control? Or are you, like me sometimes, I'll confess, shoot, drive, go. Ethan's over there. <clears throat> I saw a tangent. By the way, I had several tangents last service. So um, tangent, I saw this thing on social media. Kid comes into the kitchen in the morning and says, Mom. Don't burn the eggs. Mom, flip the eggs. Mom, mom, mom. She goes, son, I've made eggs before. He goes, I know. I just want you to know what it's like when I play soccer. <laughs> Ethan, my whole sideline thing will change after that one post. So uh, maybe, maybe it's not your, your coach. Maybe it's your, your school's administrators. They've, they've laid out a way of teaching, common core, perhaps. Ooh, I'm bristling in the room. Maybe it's, maybe it's the homeowner's association who says you can have your house in one of three colors and you really don't like beige, right? We don't like submitting to anybody. We don't like surrendering control to another human being. It's difficult, isn't it? The problem is sometimes we carry that over into our relationship with Jesus. We've got a video here for you. Jesus, I have decided to give you this. Really? You know whoever sits here makes all the decisions, right? I know, and I'm always making decisions, but you make the perfect <coughs> decisions, so you just sit right down and start making them. Wow, I'm honored. I mean, this feels great. Kathleen, guess what? I just got my new credit card. It's time to go shopping. Oh, really? I thought your husband and you were going to pay off debt. Oh, yeah. I mean, money's kind of tight, but I figured he doesn't have to know about it. So do you want to oh. go with me? No. <laughs> no? Why? Uh, what I mean is, uh, I don't know. Um, so let me check my schedule, and then I'll get back to you. Okay, yeah, give me a call. Okay. Kat, what's going on? What do you mean? Well, I'm kind of one cheek in it here. <laughs> Look, I just want to make sure we're on the same page. You wanted me to sit here, right? Well, of course. And whoever sits here makes all the decisions? Right. So what's the problem? Oh, there's not a problem. I just, I don't know what I was thinking. Really, please, here, sit down. As long as you're sure. I'm sure. Okay, so let's start over. Okay. All right. Kat, I noticed that you've been losing your temper a lot lately. Right. So, okay, Jesus, you know what? I know what you're going to say, but um, see, you, do? you don't know the whole situation, you know? Oh. Well, all I'm saying is that your attitude is a decision. Yes, of course, but I have a lot going on right now. Well, I know you're under a lot of pressure. Pressure? Jesus, you don't understand pressure, okay? This I isn't working, Kat. What? We can't both sit on the seat. It's either me or it's you. Okay, I know. You know, I, just, I didn't think it was going to be this hard, but here, just take it. No, I'm not going to take it. You have to give it to me. Okay, here. Kathleen, make a choice. I can't. 
He just did. Hmm. See, instead of surrender, all too often, we embrace rebellion. We, we don't use that word. We don't really vocalize we do this, but it's kind of what we do. Rebellion is defined as an act of open resistance to an established government or ruler. This morning, I want to look at the life of Moses. If you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 16. <clears throat> Moses was a, an interesting character. Um, he was supposed to be murdered as a child, uh, and yet he was raised in Pharaoh's household. Uh, he was a, an Israelite born into slavery, raised in Pharaoh's household, and so basically given the keys of the kingdom as a, a young, growing man. Over time, he began to, to struggle with how he saw his people uh, being treated as slaves. And one day, he saw one of his fellow Israelites uh, being um, abused and beaten, and he looked left and left, he looked right, and um, he ended up killing the Egyptian, uh, hiding the, the murder. But then it came out. And so he realized, like, I'm probably going to die. Uh, so he fled into the wilderness. And so for 40 years, he's in the wilderness as a, as a shepherd. And one day, God calls to him from a burning bush and says, Moses, I, I have a job for you to do. And he says, I want you to go back to Egypt, back to the place where you're a wanted man. And, and, and I want you to lead the nation of Israel out. And Moses, a little, you know struggling with this idea of going back. He says, you know, God, I, I, um, uh, I don't, gosh, God, I don't, I, don't, I don't talk well. And God says, okay, fine, I'll, I'll send your brother Aaron. He'll be your mouthpiece. I'll tell you what to say or what to do, and you tell him. Well, gosh, you know, what if they, what if they don't listen to me? What if, he says, tell you what, I'll give you a staff. And he says, I'll you know, give you this staff, and this staff, I'm going to work through this staff, and we're going to do some, some incredible things, and we'll show the power of God through this staff. And, and I don't know, God, even if you go with me, like, what if the nation of Israel doesn't you know, accept me? And finally, Moses, God just kind of kicks him out. He says, okay, go. you got to do this thing. So Moses goes back, and he goes to Pharaoh, and if you know the story, and Pharaoh doesn't want to release him. we got ten plagues. And, and, and finally, God, through you know, Pharaoh, releases Moses. And so million people, million plus people leave and begin to wander into the wilderness. Now, I don't know if you've spent much time in the desert, um, but there's not a lot of food. There's not a lot of, of water, right? And so be, the nation of Israel began to, to grumble against Moses, complain against Moses. And that's where we, we pick up here in Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. It says, the whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Now, I don't know if their memory was bad or what, but I'm picturing slavery, and I've never been a slave, but I'm, I'm picturing there's not pots of meat laying around for slaves, right? I think their, their memories of their experience in, Israel, in Egypt was a little skewed. But anyway, they're, they're, they're without food, they're without water, and so they grumble against God. And it says, then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven, verse 4, for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they follow my instructions. And so God gives them this thing called manna, which literally in Hebrew means, what is this, right? They walked out on the first day, and there's, if you're a literalist, Scripture says they were frosted flakes, right? Imagine that. You wake up every morning, and your floor is covered with frosted flakes. All the kids are like, what? 
In my house, it'd be, can we do Cap'n Crunch, please, with Crunch Berries? I don't do it without Crunch Berries. Um, it's got to be Crunch Berries, right? So but they wake up, and God says, I want you to just collect what you need for that day. I'm going to provide your daily bread. And, and some of the people obeyed. And this was a test. God was saying, I'm going to test Israel in this. Some of the people obeyed, and they got just what they needed for that day. Others got more than they needed. And they woke up the next morning, and it was rotten. It was gone. It was bad. And they had to go back out and collect it again. And, and God said on the sixth day, he goes, we're going to start this thing called Sabbath, a day of rest, dependence upon me, not upon yourselves. So on the sixth day, I want you to go out, and I want you to collect two days' worth. And, and some of the people did, and others like, well, no, it's been here every day. So they went out on the seventh day, and there was no manna. And God's like, okay, we got to figure this out, right? We got to learn how to be obedient, how to, to surrender to me. Well, they go on and uh, they, they start to go to the promised land. And God has been saying all along, there's this, this land of Canaan that, that I want to take you into. It's already populated. It's already prosperous. It's going to be an incredible place. It's my gift to you, God is saying to the nation. And so they get to the border of the nation of uh, land of Canaan and the promised land and and, and Moses says, okay, we're going to send in 12 spies. And if you know the story, uh, the 12 come back. Ten had a bad report. Two had a good report. Unfortunately, the nation of Israel listened to the ten. And then they said, we can't go in there. Yeah, it's a great land. I mean, it's flowing with milk and honey. And everything's already there for us. Buildings we haven't, you know, cities we haven't built. And, and fields we haven't planted. And we can just harvest it all. And the people are giants and we're terrified. And God says, trust me. Go in. And the nation said, no, we don't trust you, God. So as a result, God says, this entire generation will die in the wilderness, in the desert, before you move into the promised land. And so they begin this wandering. And most scholars say that it should have taken about 18 days to wander from Egypt to the land of Canaan. They wandered in the desert for 40 years because the nation didn't understand what God was asking, didn't surrender. They rebelled against the nation. Part of that rebellion, they, they come to Exodus chapter 17, they, they're out in the desert, and, and then obviously there's no, not a lot of water, and so they start to grumble again. I don't know how Moses had so much patience. It's Exodus 17, verse 5. It says, the Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders, and, and take in your hand the, the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out. Strike the rock, and water will come out for it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? It was interesting how God works. When I was preparing this, I knew we were talking about rebellion. I've known that for weeks, and, uh, but I didn't know what core scripture. And so as I sat in the blend on Monday and, and just praying over, like, God, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to teach? What's the core biblical text? He, he brought to mind this story. And he says, you know, Moses, and we're going to hear the rest of the story, but, but there, there was a time where the nation rebelled against God. And, 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 and so I went to this story, and as I dug into it, I didn't realize before digging into it on Monday that Masa, Masa means testing. Meribah means rebellion. The very text that God led me to, the rock that, God, that Moses struck is called rebellion. Well, time goes on, and uh, the nation of Israel wanders around the wilderness, and the last man or woman, Scripture says that it's going to be until uh, anybody that was 20 years old or older that, that didn't go into the promised land on the first time. When that last person dies, then the next generation, their children, get to go into the promised land. 
And so that has now happened. The last person has died in the second generation. Moses and Aaron are still leading them, and they get to the edge of the promised land, and, and uh, we're, we're struggling again for water. If you go to Numbers chapter 20, starting in verse 1, it says, In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. That was their sister, Moses and Aaron's sister. Now, there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. Sound familiar? We're seeing the same thing. Their parents did it, their parents' generation. They quarreled with Moses and said, if only we had died when our brothers fell before the Lord. They didn't have the experience in Egypt. They just had wandering in the desert for 40 years. Like, oh, if only we had died like our parents did. Why are you doing this to us? Why did you bring the Lord's community, verse 4, into the wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grains or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to the rock. Different plan God had for Moses. Last time he struck the rock. This time God wants Moses to speak to the rock. So speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You'll bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together, verse 10, in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, listen, you rebels. Must we bring you water out of this rock? And then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. Verse 12, but the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough, because you rebelled, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he was proved holy among them, the same place that their parents quarreled, the same place where Moses struck a rock, their children cried out. But it was Moses who rebelled. I'd like to throw out, as I'm writing a sermon, throw out to different people and just get their ideas, and I threw this out to a number of people, and Stephanie Schunk, who's a fifth grade teacher at Germantown Hills, wrote back an email in response to my questions, and in it she had a line that said this, all rebellion against God comes from a lack of trust in God. I like that. All rebellion against God comes from a lack of trust in God. Do you trust Jesus enough to completely surrender to him? I, I love the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was, would often refer to himself as a slave. He, he would call himself this, this doulos, which is Greek for bondservant. It was, it was a slave not by force, but by choice. It, it was a slave who looked at a, a master and said, my life is better off in your hands than in mine. If you have control over me rather than I have control over myself, my life is going to be better. So I voluntarily submit, I surrender myself to you. And it's one of the names that Paul, the Apostle Paul, would go to repeatedly to talk about his relationship with Jesus. Jesus, you are my Lord and my master. I am your doulos. I'm your bondservant. I am your slave. I will surrender everything to you. We talk to students all the time in student ministry that, that following Jesus will cost you. You know, it, it's not always rainbows and puppy dogs. There's a real cost to following Jesus. 
Even Jesus said this in Luke chapter 9. It says he was, they were walking along the road. A man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And Jesus said, I'm homeless. I don't have a roof over my head. I wander around. I teach. I sleep on the ground. I'm, I'm you know, dependent on others. Are you willing to, to follow me in that life? It goes on. Jesus says to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said something a little strange. He said, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. It's not that that Jesus didn't care about this man's father. It's not that he didn't care about the the death of him. It it was that he understood that this man was focused on the the temporal rather than the eternal. He was focused on on, what was happening here and now. He didn't have a spiritual perspective about his life. And he goes on in verse 61 and says, Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. He's saying, Listen, like the teeter totter last week, I need you to completely surrender everything to me. You cannot be double minded. It cannot be the things of this world and the things of Jesus. You have to choose me. Joe Thorne, I mentioned him last week. He's a pastor up in St. Charles, Illinois. In his book, Note to Self, he writes this. Faith in Jesus is not simple agreement with his words and principle. It is dependence on him to such a degree that you renounce all other things in life that have occupied a place of supremacy. And when Jesus really does come first, life becomes filled with risks. You risk the loss of family, reputation, prosperity, and more, for the world is hostile to this kind of allegiance and worship and hates the renunciation of those things the world loves to worship. See, too often we pursue what one author called a religion of prohibition rather than a gospel of transformation. It's easier to follow a religion that says, this is what I want you to do and this is what I don't want you to do. That makes sense to us. Okay, we're going to follow a checklist of rules. And we like that because it, it gives us a framework for our spirituality. But the reality is that's not the life that Jesus called us to. He didn't call us to a, a list of things to do and things not to do. He called us to a life of, of complete transformation. Remember the quote from Francois Fenelon uh, last week, to just read the Bible, attend church, and avoid the big sins. Is, is this passionate, wholehearted love for God? The reality is, is if we surrender to Jesus, as he wants us to surrender to him, then we become Jesus. We become living examples of Jesus in this world. Charles Spurgeon, who's a 19th century preacher, said, the grand point is not to wear the garb, nor use the brogue of religion, but to possess the life of God within and feel and think as Jesus would have done because of that inner life. Small is the value of external religion unless it is the outcome of a life within. Gary Thomas wrote a book called Beautiful Fight, and in it, he talks about, he says this, he says, isn't it true that most evangelism today runs up against the wall of, well, that's just your opinion, In a world busy dropping the truth of absolutes and eager to wear the clothes of intellectual and moral relativism, what will take us beyond opinion to making a compelling case for faith? And he has an answer for that question. And he says, beginning to live compelling lives that can be only explained by the truth of what we believe. Do you trust Jesus enough to surrender to him? There was an epidemic that went through Rome in A.D. 260, uh, or epidemic in AD, I'm not sure exactly the location, but uh, Dionysius, the bishop of Alexandria, um, he wrote and he contrasted how Christians responded to this epidemic 
versus non-Christians, how followers of Jesus responded to it. And he, he talked about how people who didn't follow Jesus would literally just, even their relatives, just cast them out of their home into the street to die in the streets because they didn't want to get infected by this disease, whatever it was that was running rampant. And, and Dionysius writes, in, in contrast to the Christians, says this, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and caring for others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. Are you willing to surrender everything to Jesus? Uh, St. Francis of Assisi, many of you know that name, uh, he was not always compelled by the love of Jesus. He wasn't always somebody who, who ran after God's immense deep love. And, and in fact, in that day and age, one of his great fears, one of the things that he loathed the most were lepers. Men and women who had this, this skin disease that was just highly contagious. And in fact, in that culture, lepers were supposed to be apart from everybody else. And so they would walk on the other side of the streets, they would, they would avoid human contact with other people so as not to infect them. And, and some people say they even had to walk around saying, I am unclean, unclean, I am unclean, so that nobody accidentally bumped up against them. And in fact, not only that, but they couldn't live with other people. And so they built these leper colonies where the, the people that had contracted leprosy would go and just live out their final horrible last days of life. And, and, and Francis of Assisi, he, he could not stand the sight of a leper. And he would do everything he could to avoid them. And then one day, God got a hold of him. And God, he was praying to God, and he was overwhelmed by the love that, that God had for mankind. And, and, and he, he writes in his journal uh, that he, it's as if he heard God say these words to him. Francis, all those things that you've loved in the flesh, you must now despise. And from these things that you formerly loathed, you will drink great sweetness and immeasurable delight. And he was overwhelmed by those words. and He didn't know exactly what it would mean and what it would look like, but shortly after that, he was riding his horse down a road, and all of a sudden a leper came walking towards him. And as before, he would have avoided, gone on the other side, gone a different route, gone wherever he could to avoid this person. He jumped off of his horse, ran over to the leper, embraced him, kissed him on the cheek, and said words of love to him. And he didn't stop there. He asked this, this gentleman where he lived, and, and he led him to this leper colony. We don't know how many were there exactly, but history tells us that Francis did not leave that leper colony until he physically touched every leper and he kissed them on the cheek because he was so overwhelmed by the love of God for all of mankind, even the leper, that he was willing to surrender his health, his life possibly. Vivia Perpetua was a third century North African noblewoman, a young girl, Married into a, she was raised in a wealthy family, and married well, was probably a late teenager, was a, a new mother. And during this time, Emperor Septimus Severus uh, put out a, a decree across all of the land that said all people, nobody can convert to Christianity, and every person must make sacrifices to him, the emperor, not to their god. And anybody who refused be thrown to the beast at the amphitheater for the entertainment, the gladiator uh, arenas. And, and, and Perpetua's father knew that she was a Christian. 
knew that she had followed Jesus. And he pleaded with her. He said, please just renounce your faith. They're going to kill you. And she said, I can't. And he said, just, just make a simple sacrifice to the emperor. What's the big deal? Like, you are going to die. And, and she went to their, in their home, and she picked up a pitcher. And she said these words, Father, do you see this pitcher? Yes, of course I see it. Can it be called by any name other than what it is? No, of course not. So I also cannot be called anything else than what I am, which is a Christian. On March 7th, 203 AD, she and her servant Felicity were brought into the amphitheater, brought into the arena. Young teenage girls, they were wanting to, Rome wanted to humiliate them. And so they stripped them down naked in front of thousands of people. And the crowd actually protested. The crowd couldn't handle the image of these naked teenager, teenage girls about to be killed. And so they cried out in protest. And so the, the, the guards brought them back in, clothed them, and then brought them back out. And the history tells us that, that they could have chosen a bear to kill these young girls. And, and a bear with a teenage girl, one swipe would have killed one of them. Instead, they wanted to prolong the suffering to make a point. So they chose a, 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 a bull. And the bull is not going to kill quickly. A bull is going to kill you slowly, trample you, gore you to death. And, and, and so they released the bull, and the bull went after Felicity and Perpetua, and they just laid there. They knelt there, allowing the bull to, to kill them. Except the bull didn't kill them. They survived. So they sent a gladiator out. And it's said that, that the gladiator went for the killing blow on Perpetua, and, and maybe he was distracted by something, maybe something in her eyes, we don't really know, but he missed the killing blow, and he injured her even further. And the crowd is pleading now for mercy to just end her suffering. And it's said that she reached up, and she grabbed the gladiator's hand and directed the sword to her neck for the killing blow, all because she wouldn't renounce her faith. Do you trust Jesus enough to surrender everything to him? You see, the antithesis to rebellion is surrender. What happens when we surrender? We become the image bearers of Jesus Christ in this world. We become what Gary Thomas called God oases in a lost and hurting world. He writes in Beautiful Fight, a holy man or woman is a spiritual force, a God oasis in a world that needs spiritually strong people. When the winds of turmoil hit, such people become shelters. Their faith provides a covering for all. And by their words and actions, by the ways they, they listen and use their eyes to live instead of lust, to honor instead of hate, to build up instead of tear down, holy women and men are like streams of water in the desert, affirming what God values most. These God oases carry Christ to the hurting, to the ignorant, to those in need. We just did our transformed series. It was a multi-week series, and the core text was Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And I love how the message paraphrase writes this. I don't always like the message, but I like this one, this part. So here's what I want you to do, Eugene Peterson writes, God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life. Place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture <clears throat> that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. 
You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. This spiritual act of worship, it's not singing songs, it's, it's a complete offering of who we are. Everything. Do you trust Jesus enough to surrender to him? C.E. Cranfield wrote, The Christian, already God's by right of creation and by right of redemption, has yet again to become God's by virtue of his own free surrender of himself. And this self-surrender has, of course, to be continually repeated. See, we all have our Meribah moments. We all have these rocks in our lives. When we come up on it and, and we hear God's voice through our prayers, through the Holy Spirit, through Scripture, and he's saying, listen, in this moment, here's what I want you to do. And, and we're, we're faced with that moment of decision. Do we surrender? Do we obey? Or do we do what we want? Do we take control and rebel against God's plan for our life? Maybe it's your finances. I've talked about that during this series. Maybe, maybe your Meribah moment is really surrendering to living financial stewardship like the Bible says. Maybe it's your, your, your worry Maybe you're worrying so much about tomorrow, so much about what's going to happen next week, next year. I'm, I'm there with you. Maybe it's your career. Maybe your Meribah moment is God is saying, listen, I want you to go do something else. Or I want you to, to not take that promotion because the impact it's going to have on your family. Or I want you to take that promotion because I got plans for you in that job. You've got to be so in tune with God that you know in this Meribah moment because it's different. One time Moses was called to strike the rock. Another time he was called to speak to the rock. You've got to be listening for the voice of God. Maybe it's, you know, I, I, was, I was working at the blend on the sermon, and I got up to refill my coffee, and like I said, I always like to throw it out to a few different groups of people, and one of those groups is students. I want to hear from students. Like, what do you, what do you think about this topic I'm talking on? And, I, and so there was this group of high school girls that I know, and they were all sitting there having coffee, and I, I'm like, oh, hey, guys, I didn't know you were here. And, can I, can I like ask you some questions? And I just sat down with their permission and interviewed them for about 15, 20 minutes and on this topic. And I said, what do you think in the lives of students? Where do we, where do we have trouble surrendering control? Where do we try to take over control in our, uh, rather than give it to God? And they talked about a number of things. And one of the things that stood out to me was, was uh, gossip, controlling your tongue. You know, they said, it's just rampant. And honestly, I don't think it's just students. I think we do it as adults as well. We're just a little more sophisticated about it, especially in the Christian circle. We, we couch it and frame it in the idea of a prayer request. You know, hey, would you guys pray for Nate and Sarah? Do you hear about what's going on in their lives? Whew. Like, God bless them, they need help, but wow, you know? You don't really care. You're not trying to pray for them. You just want to gossip about them. Nothing's going on in Nate and Sarah's life, by the way. Maybe it's time. Maybe it's how you manage your time. Students talked about binge-watching Netflix. We've probably all been there, right? Maybe it's not Netflix, maybe it's social media, and we spend hours on social media, and God is saying, man, i got such a better plan for your time than scrolling through Facebook or Instagram, Twitter. I'm not saying those things are bad or evil, but they can become consumers of our time. Maybe it's your relationships. Maybe you're married a moment. God is saying, listen, I've, I've got a plan for your relationship, and I need you to surrender to my plan for that relationship rather than your plan. Gary Thomas, again, in Beautiful Fight, says, almost without question, the happiest, most joy-filled people I meet are those who believe they are exactly where God wants them to be. 
And the most frustrated people on this planet tend to be those who are fighting God rather than surrendering to him. Paul writes in Philippians, I want to know Christ. And the word know there in Greek is, is a, a deep, powerful knowledge. It's, it's, it speaks of intimacy of a husband to a wife, that type of knowledge. He says, I want to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I, I worked with a lady in my last church that she said, I want to be, I want to be Jesus with skin on. Yeah, I want to be Jesus with skin on. When people look at me, I don't want them to see me. I want them to see Jesus. Henry Blackaby writes, God wants to reveal himself to those around you by working mightily through you. He wants your family to see Christ in you each day. God wants to express his love through your life. There's a great difference between living the Christian life and allowing Christ to live his life through you. And for our conversation today, surrender is allowing Christ to live through us. The rest of, of Gary Thomas's book, Beautiful Fight, and I encourage you to read it, he goes in chapter after chapter and he talks about what's going to come up on the screen next and what does that look like? What does it mean to, to fully surrender and allow Christ to live through you? And he, he writes chapters about allowing your eyes to see as God sees the world. How would that change our lives? If, if as we looked around in our family, our homes, our community, our workplaces, the world, we saw the world as God sees it. Would, would, that, would that change us? I, mean, I would like to think so. He talks about being mouths that speak the truth of God. You know, rather than gossip, rather than, than putting down people, rather than knocking them down, we lift them up and we elevate them. Remind them that they're made in the image of God and that Jesus loved them so much that he died on the cross for them. Ears that hear what's really happening. You ever talk to somebody and you're like, hey, how you doing? They're like, oh, I'm good. And you can just tell from body language, they're not good, right? Sometimes we're in too much of a hurry to really dig into that, probe into it. But other times we just, we don't have ears that hear that. We're like, oh, okay, you're good, cool. But what if we, what if we could really hear as God hears? Minds that think. I think too often, not just followers of Jesus, but I think too often people get caught up in emotion and not in, in rational logic and reason. We allow emotion to, to dictate our words, our actions, our choices. But what if we had minds that think God gave us this incredible gift? And what if we used it the way he intended it? What if we, we became hands and feet that were used by God? And we said like Isaiah, here am I, Lord, send me. Whatever you need me to do, wherever you need me to go, God, I'm going to surrender my hands and my feet, my life to you. You get control. Hearts that feel. What if, <clears throat> what if we really had hearts that beat like the heartbeat of God? What if our hearts broke for the things that break God's heart? I'm going to get rid of bobblehead Jesus here for a minute. Remember last week when I said part of preaching is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable? Remember we're friends. It's very important you remember that. We're sitting in a coffee house. We're having a conversation. Over the weekend, just like you, I saw everything come in from Paris. I saw all the attacks. I saw the, the mayhem, the death. And I sat in my, my living room, and I think the bulls were playing. Of course, in our house, it's always on. 
But I'm just, I'm, I'm processing through this, and I'm trying to figure out what is my reaction to this? What's this supposed to be? Because I, I was seeing all sorts of reactions. I really was. I mean, you saw it too. Incredible sympathy and empathy going out to the Parisians, rightfully so. Cries of immediate military response, closing down borders, of eliminating every refugee ever coming into any country from a country where ISIS or terrorists come from. And I'm just, I'm not, I'm not responding to this outward publicly, but just internally. I'm, I'm trying to see this as God sees it. And, and, and then I see other articles, and I didn't know this, and I'm not trying to make anybody else feel guilty, but, you know, we saw the wave of, of people change their profile pics to the French flag, right? And do you know that there were also terrorist attacks in Beirut, Lebanon, and Baghdad, Iraq, in the last 48 hours? And that pretty much just as many people died in those countries as they did in France? And I realized in that moment, part of what I was struggling with is that we're selective in our grief. If you look like me, you act like me, and something bad happens to you, I will feel bad for you. But if you're not like me, if you're in a country that I don't understand, that I don't follow, that I don't get, where violence is norm, that's just another day. Another suicide bomber. Another 40 people died at a funeral of a soldier in Iraq. Big deal. Remember, we're friends. See, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what to do with the fact that in the last 48 hours, over 115,000 people around the world have died. And yet, most of our time and attention has focused on 150 in France. And I'm not downplaying what happened to them. Please understand me. But the wave of emotion, the wave of support, is not universal. See, I, I, I wrestle with this. I don't know what to do about Islam. I don't know about to do, what to do about extremist Islam. Does that mean that every Muslim is a terrorist? No. Does every Christian subscribe to Westboro Baptist? No. Thank God. And, but I struggle with this. Like... If I, as a follower of Jesus, don't want Westboro Baptist to represent me and my understanding of my faith, then why is it that it's so easy to apply that to the broad scope of Islam because of extremists? Is Islam a religion of, of terror and violence? I don't know. I'm not Islamic. I'm not going to dare to say I've studied it enough to be able to tell you yes or no. Are there a lot of extremists in the name of Islam? Yeah, Absolutely. And it's one thing, uh, I was talking to a guy after service last week, and he said, you know, he said, he said this, he'd read this. It's hard, I wrote this in, in pen. He said, it's hard to coexist when one, wants, one person wants to kill the other. And I get that. And that's where the moral well, relativism of, of Westboro Baptists and Islamic extremists comes into play. Because Westboro Baptists, for all their hate speech, for all their, their, their stuff that they do, all the protesting, all the, the speaking out against everything, they're not out there killing people. That's part of the struggle I have. I don't know how to respond in this moment, in this world that we live in. I'm not a political leader. I don't, I don't lead our military. I don't lead our nation. I'm not anti-soldier either. 
I have friends and family that have served in the military and continue to serve. And I'm very proud of that. I support those men and women who are willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice, to get into the arena with other men and women who are trying to kill them to protect us. I'm just, I'm just anti-war. I wish it wasn't necessary. I wish we didn't live in a world like we live in. I wish we didn't live in a world where, where people had to consider closing down their borders to people who literally have nothing except what's on their backs. And all they're trying to do is get away from murder and terror and mayhem in their own country. I don't know what to do with refugees. Do we close our border or do we not? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not the leader of our nation. I'm not the leader of our military. I don't know the right things to do there. What I am in control of is my response as a follower of Jesus. And if I'm to submit, this is one of those Meribah moments. If I'm to submit, here's what the Bible says. Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than the others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I read in Romans, a few books over, chapter 12. It says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In all of your prayers, and they were appropriate prayers, in all of your prayers for the families of the Parisians, did you pray for the terrorists? Did you pray for ISIS? Did you pray for the Islamic extremists that they would come to understand who Jesus is and the depth of God's love for them? Because my Meribah moment in this moment is easy to cry out hatred against those terrorists. It's not easy to pray for them. And yet, my Lord and Savior Jesus says that's supposed to be my response as a follower of him. Did you pray for them? Did I pray for them? Every sermon I deliver is spoken just to me as much as it is to you. Say, I read Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. It says, Seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. I wonder if we'd be willing to substitute seek justice encourage the refugee, defend the cause of the refugee, plead the case of the refugee. So I wish we didn't live in the world we do. I wish we didn't need military. I wish we didn't need soldiers. I wish we didn't need guns and missiles and all that stuff. But it seems like, unfortunately, we do. 
But my prayer is that that day will come when they're not necessary. And unfortunately, I don't think that's happening until Jesus comes back. But here's an interesting passage, just one chapter later in Isaiah, chapter 2. It says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. And catch this. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks because weapons will no longer be necessary. There's a day coming. Probably when Jesus comes back, not before. When weapons won't be necessary. When soldiers will no longer be needed to defend the oppressed. To fight against those who are killing the innocent. Isaiah goes on, he says, Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. I don't know what to do with all this. I don't know what the answers are. I don't know if there are answers. But I know we're to surrender. If we bear the name of Christ, we're to surrender our opinions to this, our perspective to this, our actions, the words we say to this. And I'll tell you, I have a hard enough time living out Jesus' words in three chapters in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I don't know what to do right now with everything that's happening in the world. It scares me, frightens me for my kids and their generation, frightens me as an American citizen, because I don't want what happened in France to happen on our soil. I don't want it to happen anywhere. I don't want it to happen in the Middle East. But until the day Jesus comes back, we surrender and we pray for peace. We pray for those who are victims of violence, and we pray for those who are committers of violence. We surrender. We're going to sing a song. I want you to stand as we do. Let's pray. Father, we cry out to you. Lord, come. It's so easy in moments, not just terrorism, but when we're offended, when we're taken advantage of, when we don't get what we want. It's so easy to retaliate, whether in word or action. Father, it's so easy to take our life into our own hands and start calling the shots. And yet, you want our lives to be an offering to you. Not to, not to take the stool from us, but to willingly receive the stool. Father, we bow before you today to surrender. Amen.